Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. So from here on to Christmas, we're going to be hearing stories about uh, the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12, it'll be on the screen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and he came f- and we came. Sorry, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests, preachers, uh, teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When Herod called the Magi secret, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On the coming of the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thanks, Ben. Cool. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ben. If we haven't met before, it's great that we can gather together. We're going to pray, and then we're going to kick off this series together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the joy that we have to be here this morning. Um, we pray, Father, that whatever is happening in our lives, that for the next little bit, we'd be able to leave it behind and focus in on who you are and what you're saying to us. We pray, Lord, that we would be different people to the ones who walked in this morning because we've met with the living God. And we pray that you would do that work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it in your house that creates the most diverse reactions? For us, in our house, it's usually got to do with food, okay? So in our house, between Elizabeth, my wife, and I, there are some things that divide us. So the question of tomato sauce, Elizabeth would put that on everything if she could, whereas for me, I don't think it's that good. That's a reaction that divides us when it comes to tomato sauce. It's not just tomato sauce, though, the question of herbs, coriander, right? Typically, this is a divisive herb. It's also mint in our, in our house as well, and Elizabeth can't stand it, but for me... 
hook it into my veins. That stuff is good and it makes everything better. So herbs also, that divides us. Then there's also the question of M&Ms. Now, Elizabeth would die on the hill that crispy M&Ms are the best. But for me, I don't think they're that good. Now, don't get me wrong, I will eat them. I just won't smile when I am eating them, but if they're there, of course, I'm going to eat them, but I don't think they're that good. But the most divisive thing in our house is when it comes to baked beans. Now, it's not a question of should you eat them or not, it's just how do you eat them? Do you eat them hot or cold? Now, unfortunately, this is a battle that I'm losing because Elizabeth and now Poppy will eat baked beans cold. Whereas for me, under no circumstances should you ever even consider about eating baked beans cold. Now, there, there it is. There's the things that divide us in our house. I'm sure they divide you as well uh, in some ways, and maybe your household too. But as we think about this, of course, you can see that when it comes to food, divisive reactions, that doesn't really matter. It's just a little bit of fun to think about this this morning. And uh, just full disclosure, Elizabeth and I still get along despite those things dividing us in our house. These things don't really matter, but we know that throughout life there are certain things that divide us. There are certain things culturally, there are certain things in our homes that divide us, and there are some things that do matter. Now, one of those things is Christmas, okay? So Christmas is around. I, I know you've sensed that uh, from about uh, mid-November. The shops have told us that Christmas is coming, the carols, the decorations. It's now December, which means the stress and the planning and the presents, all of that sort of stuff is coming, and there is a reality that Christmas does divide us. But today, what we want to think about is not just the mess of Christmas, we want to think about the message of Christmas. And we want to think about what's going on at the heart of Christmas, and what reaction that should create in us. What reaction the claims of Christmas kind of brings upon us, what should, how should we react to Christmas, and, and why does it really matter how we react to this season anyway? This is what we're going to look at this morning as we open up our Bibles and have a look at Matthew chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles there, let's have a look, because what we're going to see is it begins with the claim of Christmas, then we get some reactions to that claim, and then we see why it matters. So we're going to kick it off in chapter 2 of Matthew, beginning in verse 1, where it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "'Where is the one who was born King of the Jews?' We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so, so how should we react to Christmas? Well, up front, here is the claims of Christmas, and Matthew wants to make it super clear for us that we can't miss it. The claim of Christmas is this, that a king is born. Now, we've been singing about that already this morning, but you, you see this in these verses, don't you? It's all about two kings. So King Jesus is born into a world where King Herod exists. Now, let's explore this for a moment because King Herod does play a key part in today's passage. Uh, and historically, we know some things about King Herod. He's a strong ruler, but he's a, a little bit of a tyrant. Okay, so we'll see that before the passage is out. But historically, there's, there's a uh, record of this, of King Herod and just the type of ruler he was. Uh, so uh, on his deathbed, King Herod, uh, when he died, he knew that all of Jerusalem would celebrate his death. He was, King Herod was the king of the Jews, and he was a tyrant, and so when he would die, uh, he knew that everyone would celebrate his death. So what he did to avoid people celebrating his death was he killed all the notable men in Jerusalem. So that when he died, people would mourn instead of celebrating. Okay, this is the world that Jesus is born into. This is the type of king that King Herod is. He's a strong leader, but he's a bit of a tyrant. 
Okay, now, now he exists, and we read that the Magi come to King Herod, and they ask, where is the king of the Jews? Uh, that's what they say in verse 2 there. Uh, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So, so here we get the claim of Christmas, but let's just think about for a moment who these Magi are. Okay, you, you've probably heard about the Magi before. Uh, typically, they're called the wise men. Uh, you'll see them in every nativity scene. But let's just reflect on these magi for a moment, because I think pretty much everything we know about them is wrong. Okay, so that, that is because of the song, We Three Kings. Now, you know, you might have been singing it already this Christmas. Maybe you love carols and have been getting into that for a long time. But We Three Kings, you know the, the song, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning, but uh, the words are, We Three Kings of Orient are bringing gifts or whatever from afar, the chorus, Star of Wonder, Star of Night. Okay, you get the song. The problem with the song is it's, it's just not factually correct. Okay, so they're not kings. Let's start there. They're visiting a king, King Jesus. They will come face to face with King Herod, but they are not kings. Uh, the, the second thing is they're not, uh, there's not three of them. Right, so that's important to note. I know this might blow your mind here because at Garden City and the nativity scene, there are three there. But there's not three, there's not necessarily three. I mean, we don't know how many there are. There's three gifts, but that never represents how many people are giving you those gifts. You know, you think about it just logically. You think about it at Christmas time this year. You might get one big gift from your whole family. Or someone might give you a bunch of small gifts. N number of gifts don't represent the person giving them, and yet we've decided that there's three kings. So everything we know about that song is pretty much wrong. Now, I'm not saying let's cancel it. No, whatever you need to get in the mood of Christmas, you do you. But let's just actually make sure we know who these magi are. Okay, so what do we know about them? Well, uh, what we know is that they are magi. Okay, so, so typically we see magi a few times in the Bible, but the, the magi are basically mystics. Okay, so they get into star stuff, astrology. That's the kind of stuff that they're into. In fact, if these mystics were around today... I think they would have some crystals. I think that's what they would have. I think they'd also be getting into essential oils. I think they'd be into a bit of that because that's kind of the stuff that they're into. These are the magi. They're mystics. What we also know about these guys is that uh, they're from a Gentile place. Okay, so biblically speaking, this is a big deal because you've got in the Bible, you've got the Jews, God's people, and then you've got the Gentiles, everyone else, and, and these are Gentiles. Now, they could be from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. We don't really know where they're from, but what we know is this. They're Gentile mystics. Okay, that's who is coming to show us the claims of Christmas. It's, it's a pretty beautiful reality, actually, that, that Gentile mystics are the ones telling us about Jesus. It's quite powerful when you think about it. I, I mean, if you, you take a side step for a moment and think about this, uh, we've just finished Alpha for another term, uh, and uh, Alpha is just the best. I'd love to, hopefully soon, in the next few months, we'll tell you a little bit about this last Alpha course and how lives were changed and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I love about Alpha is it's just a great chance to ask your questions and uh, wrestle with the things that you've got going on in your life. And uh, it, this year, we've run four Alpha courses this year, and a question that's come up a lot of times is this question, what happens to the person in, in the deepest, darkest Africa? or the deepest, darkest Middle East. What happens to the person that doesn't even know a Christian, let alone, you know, hear about them, the good news of the Bible? You know, it's a great question. 
And, and really, Alpha is the best because it's just a safe space to ask your questions. And, and so whenever this question's been asked this year, it, it's been uh, encouraging to, to hear that question asked. And, and our response is often pointing them to Romans 1. So if you know Romans 1, it speaks about how there is enough in creation to get a sense that there's a creator. Romans 1 speaks about that. But you know what I love about this passage? It gives us another answer to that question. You see, the Magi are the people from the deepest, darkest Middle East, right? And we all know about the Magi, three wise men. They're everywhere, right? We know about these people. But here is an example of people who were outside of the community, Gentile mystics, and yet here they are coming to celebrate Jesus. You know, the usual way people hear about Jesus is through words. That is true. Most people hear about the message of Jesus and come to faith through words as people speak that. But we've got to recognize God's not limited by words. He can do whatever He wants. And here is just an awesome example of that once again. Gentile mystics come to Jesus and they show us the claims of Christmas. Here is the King of the Jews. This baby is not just a king in a manger. He's the King of the universe. Okay, so there it is. There's the claims of Christmas. Now the question is, how do we react? Or what are the reactions to this claim? What's the response that people can make to the claim that a king is born? Well, this is what we see as we keep reading. And, and we're actually going to see three responses, three reactions to this claim. And the first is indifference, and we see this through the religious leaders. So let's have a look. Verse 3, we keep reading. This is what it says. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, so that's the religious leaders, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what are the reactions to the claim that a king is born? Well, the first reaction is indifference. Now, we get this from the religious leaders, and we see this not just through what happens in this passage, but in the context of Matthew. So, in the context of the, of the gospel of Matthew, the good news of, of Matthew, we see over and over again that the religious leaders are the people that don't quite get it. They have the appearance of doing the right thing. Uh, so, you know, they would, they would dress right, they would say the right things, but inside they weren't doing it from a place where they were genuinely seeking God. In fact, later Jesus will call them whitewashed tombs. And what he's saying there is, you, you look good on the outside, but inside you are dead. This is what we know in the context of Matthew about the religious leaders. And here in this passage, what we get is actually kind of the, the first signs that for the religious leaders, there's something missing. You see, King Herod comes and asks them about the king of, of the Old Testament. Right? Tell me about this king. Where is this king going to be born? And this, you've got to understand that in the Bible, this is a really big deal, right? Right from the very beginning of the Bible, from the, the start of the Old Testament to the end of it, the longing for a king was super important, right? Uh, it's important because from the very beginning, they were looking for a king who would slay the serpent, who would deal with Satan. They're looking for a king who would deal with suffering and sickness and death. They were looking for a king who would bring God's people back to God's place under God's rule. They were looking for this king, longing for this king. And, and for people genuinely seeking God, this is what they were genuinely seeking, the king. Now here in this moment, King Herod comes to the religious leaders and says, where is this king? And they say the right thing, right? They say in Bethlehem, that's, that's where you can expect that king to be born. But do you notice what isn't there? 
There's nothing else. They say the right thing, but there's not even a question of intrigue. There's not even a, a pursuit of this. They, they're not the ones that go and visit Jesus. No, that's the Gentile mystics. The religious leaders don't do anything with this. In fact, the very next time we see them is when John the Baptist will call them a brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. What you get from the religious leaders in this passage is quite telling. And really at the heart of it, it's indifference. They hear about the news of Christmas, the claims of a king, but they don't do anything with that. Now here in the religious leaders, we get the first way that people can react to Christmas. It's with indifference. Now, of course, this happened in the ancient world, but we know this too happens today. We see this all around us, you know? I, I mean, it's still unbelievable to me that we get public holidays at Christmas time. We, we, uh, the whole world stops, you know, our country stops to celebrate Christmas in some ways, and yet many of our country don't care at all about the actual story of Christmas. We know that people react like this and are indifferent towards the claims of Christmas. But as we gather together today, we don't just want to be thinking about everyone else, we've got to feel this for ourselves. We've got to be confronted by this reality because what the religious leaders show us is that you can be doing the right thing. You can have the appearance that you're doing the right thing and you can say the right thing. Maybe you're even a team leader. Maybe, you know, you've got people under you and you're caring for people. Maybe you rock up every Sunday at church. The religious leaders warn us that you can be doing the right thing and yet be dead inside. And so we've got to be confronted by this reality. So what does it look like to be indifferent to the claims that a king is born in a manger? What does it look like to be indifferent? Well, I think you see it play out in two ways. Either you don't care at all, or you don't care all of the time, right? So you don't care at all. We know this, indifferent to Jesus. And so some of us this morning might feel this way. You know, we might be here at church, but we don't care. Everything we've been singing about, it just has no effect on us at all. You know, growing up, this was my experience. My parents dragged me to church for 18 years of my life, and I did not care for it. Some of us might be here this morning indifferent to the fact that a king is born at Christmas time. But for some of us, it might just play out a little bit more subtly than that. You know, it might be that it's not that we don't care at all, it's just that we don't care all of the time. You know, and in that way, we're kind of part-time Christians, so for some of us, we care about Jesus some days or Sundays, but just not the rest of the time. And there, there's other times in our life where we're off the clock. You know, maybe it's when we're at school or at work or around certain friends where in that pocket of our life, Jesus being king doesn't matter. The first response that people can make to the claim that a king is born is indifference. The religious leaders show us that, and we too can see that today. But this, of course, is not the only response that people can make to the claim of Christmas. As we keep reading, we see the second response, which is anger. And we get this from King Herod. Now, we read in verse 3 that King Herod was disturbed about this news. And we know he's disturbed in more ways than one. But then in verse 7 and 8, he speaks to the Magi and he says, Hey, go and, go and search carefully for this child and tell me about it so I, I can go worship him. Now, Herod's not speaking truth there. Uh, he's trying to deceive the Magi. And we see this explicitly from verse 16 right through to 18. But, but in verse 16, because when he hears that the Magi didn't go and tell him where the child was born, Herod was furious. And what he does is he gives orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who are under two years old. Herod responds to the news that there is a king in anger, and he does something just so outrageous. 
I mean, you feel that, right? You get a sense of that. He was a tyrant. We know that he was a tyrant, and here he is acting in just the most unbelievable way by killing all the boys in, in Bethlehem under two years old. The outcry, the pain is, is unbearable. But you, you, you zone in to his response here, and you think about it. Why, why does he do this? Well, he's angry. And so you've got to ask the question, okay, so why is he so angry about this? Why is he so angry about the news that Jesus is king? Well, at the heart of it, he's angry because this is a threat to him. This is a threat that someone else will be king, that he will be dethroned. You know, you think about it, magi from the east coming, a star in the sky uh, pointing to this reality. This is a threat to his kingship. And, And his response is anger because his power and his autonomy is under threat. You know, he wants to do whatever he wants to do. He wants to make his own decisions and, and be his own king and, and make whatever call that he wants to make, and no one can threaten that. And, and when that is under threat, his response is anger. So we see this in this passage, but of course we know that we see this today as well. You see, we might not see Herod's acting like Herod's today, but the reality is we do see this response from people today. Because the, the, the reality is often people are angry towards the, the idea that someone else is king. You know, you think about it, at the heart of it, if Jesus is king, that means that his way and his life and his rule is, what, is, is, is all and final. And the very idea that someone else can tell me what to do, that, that is a threat to me. You know, like, I mean, full disclosure, I don't like being told what to do. I hate that. I, I've never liked that. You know, my whole life, you know, you think about it, our whole life, we don't like, we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like people telling us the freedoms that uh, we can have or, or how our life should be shaped or what decisions we should make. We don't like that idea. We want to be our own rulers and, our, and have our own authority. And you think about it from the very beginning of the Bible, this is what we see. So in the garden, when the tree was put there by God, he said that the garden was very good, but he put the tree in the garden. He said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree. Now, do you know what that question is from God? He's asking them, who's king? That's what that is in that moment. He's asking them, Adam and Eve, who's king? Are you going to be king? Or is the God who created everything going to be king? And what do they do? They eat from the fruit of the tree because they want to have the rule and authority and power. We know how the story unfolded in Genesis 3, but of course we see how this unfolds in all of our life. No human ever likes being told what to do. That is the nature of sin. We want to be our own rulers and have our own autonomy and our own control. And when this is under threat, the response that people make is often anger. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've felt this or experienced this. You know, how dare God tell me what to do? Have you ever felt that before? Right, surely God can't be, can't be real with the stuff that he's trying to imprint on my life. Maybe you've heard it said, you know, surely that ancient book wasn't really saying what it said and it, mean, it had to mean something else. I mean, often people's response when they think about the very idea that God is king and I'm not king, that it's his word and not my word, our response can be anger as well. We might not do the things that Herod does, but at a heart level, we can feel the same way. 
So you've got indifference, where you don't care about the claims of Christmas. You've got anger towards the idea that someone else is king. But then finally, there's one more response that we see in this passage, and it's from the Gentile mystics. And we see from them a devotion. So let's have a look at this. In verse 9 we read, after they had heard the king, they went on, uh, after they had heard the king, that's King Herod, they went on their way and the star they had seen when, uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. The third response that we get, the third reaction that we get to the claim that a king is born is devotion. And we see this from the Gentile mystics. We see this in their response. And I love it. It's so good. They come and they see Jesus and their response is first and foremost, they're overjoyed. Literally the word of overjoyed, it's overflowing with joy. And it's just such a beautiful picture. You know, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago when we did Joy in the Pursuing Greatness series where we reflected on the fact that whenever you're in the presence of Jesus, you're filled with joy. This too is what we see with these magi. They're overjoyed. And then they show us what a reaction to the king looks like. They see the king and then they bow down to him. They pay homage to him. Literally, this idea is they get low and they worship him. Now, now, you know, worship is one of those jargony words sometimes that churches will use. But in this passage, essentially, it's this idea that you've come face to face with the king. And when you come face to face with the king, you know that you're not worthy. And so they give their attention, their affection, their adoration, and everything in their hands to this king. And they show us the third reaction that people can have to the king. It's devotion. Now again, we see this in the ancient world, but of course we see this today as well. And and we know that we see this. And I don't think you have to look too far to see this around our church. You, you, You see a people who are responding to the king with all of their lives. You know, uh, not just pockets of their lives, not just some days, but all of their lives, and they give their attention, their affection, their praise, their time, their energy, they're generous with their talents and their treasures. People do this all the time at Southside. I mean, we've already this morning celebrated our kids, church leaders, and helpers, and there in that moment is a reality of people who are devoted to God and willing to give up their Sundays to help other people come to faith. But of course, we know that it's not just kids at our church. Right? We see this right throughout our church. In fact, in the vision book, it says there's 142 volunteers at Southside. I mean, you just think about that. That's 142 people across the year who made church happen week in, week out. Some people do it in ways that you see, and some people do it in ways that you don't see. Some people do it week in, week out. Some people do it every second week. But the reality is, all of these people pretty much are doing it on a volunteer basis. Right, so you think about it, everything is pretty much volunteer, from kids to youth to music and tech to what happens after the service with morning tea and, and coffee to being welcomed on the way in to graphics and social media. All of it basically is done by volunteers. Now, now to point it out very clearly, Southside couldn't happen if this didn't happen if people didn't give their time towards what happened here at church. And so when you see the volunteer hours that go into it and you see people's devotion, you ask, okay, so why would anyone do that? Why would people give up their lives to to make church happen week in, week out? Well, to put it clearly this morning, it's not to do me a favor. 
It's not to do Ross a favor. It's not to do Petrina a favor or any of the staff a favor. The reason people do this is because they're devoted to King Jesus. You don't have to look that far to see what devotion looks like in our present day and age and in our church. We see this all the time and we're celebrating this on a Vision Sunday like today. But you get in this moment, you get the third reaction to Jesus, devotion. This is what the Magi do and this is what we see today. And so, so here are the three responses. You can make indifferent, you can be indifferent to the claim that there is a king, you can be angry towards the claim that there's a king, or you can be devoted. Now the question we've got to ask is, okay, so which reaction is the best reaction? Which reaction makes the most sense? Because today we might all be gathered here and some of us might feel differently. Some of us might be indifferent. Some of us might be angry. Some of us might be devoted. But we've got to ask this question, okay, so, so what is the reaction that we should be taking? What makes the most sense and which reaction is the best reaction for us to take? Well, to look at that, we've got to go to the end of the story. Because the reality is when we're thinking about reacting to the king born in a manger, we're not just reacting to a little cuddly baby. Right? In fact, we, we know the story. This baby will you know, be visited by Magi. We'll see a little bit more of the story over the next few weeks. But then, of course, Jesus would grow up. And he would do signs and wonders, and then he'd die on a cross. And when Jesus died on a cross, the sign above his head was King of the Jews. The king is not just the king in a manger. He's also the king on the cross. And he would die, and then three days later, rise again, and appear to over 500 people across 40 days. And then Jesus would ascend into heaven, where now he sits in glory on his throne forever. The king in the manger is the king on the cross, and also the king in glory. So as we think about our reaction, we've got to hold it all together. And, and to do that this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to reflect on the end of the story. Because in the book of Revelation, John gets a picture, a vision of this king in glory. And so however you think about Christmas, however you think about the story, the claims, the, the king is born, let's think about it in light of the end, in light of the picture that we get in Revelation of Jesus in glory. So if you've got your Bibles there, you can flick over. It'll be on the screen as well. But we're going to have a look at this in Revelation chapter 1, where John the apostle who followed Jesus for three years, now gets this vision of Jesus in glory. And it's in Revelation chapter 1 from verse 12. We're going to see this. He says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. Do you see the picture of the king? It's not just a cute baby in a manger. The king in a manger was the king on the cross and now sits as the king in glory. And here is this overwhelming picture. His face shining in brilliance, a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, this is glory. This is a big, overwhelming picture of Jesus. Now, I've often thought in my life, you know, if, if I was there, if I was John and got this vision of Jesus, how would I respond to that? You know, I wonder if you've ever thought that. How would you respond if you actually saw this vision? 
what John actually shows us. In verse 17, he says this, the whole glory, the sun shining in all its brilliance, and then verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, when he is confronted with the the vision of Jesus in glory, falls face down as though dead. You know, the Magi, when they saw Jesus, they fell face down. Right throughout the Bible, when people are confronted with the presence and power of Jesus, they fall face down. If we saw Jesus this morning, we too would fall face down. The power and the presence of Jesus is magnificent. But it's not just the power and the presence of Jesus that helps us think about our reactions. It's also the beauty of Jesus. Because look at what happens next. Jesus, uh, John falls face down as though dead. Then he says this, Then he, that's Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, the power and the presence of Jesus is also the beauty of Jesus. This is what we're seeing in this moment because Jesus puts his hand on John and says, don't be afraid, I got this. I was dead, but now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death forever. And it's here in glory that we're seeing the beauty of Jesus, what Jesus offers. But it's also here that our reactions are confronted. Right? Because the, the, the picture of glory confronts us. It challenges us. I mean, you think about it. When you have this picture of Jesus in glory, indifference doesn't actually make any sense. How can you look at this and feel nothing and see nothing? I mean, this is the king of kings in glory who says, I've got the keys of death. Indifference, it doesn't make any sense. But not only does it not make any sense, it's dangerous. In fact, in a few chapters' time, he he will say to the churches, uh, or one of the church, he'll say, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, and I'll spit you out. Indifference is a dangerous place. And if we're feeling indifferent, it's probably because our picture of Jesus is too small. It might just be that we've stopped at the cute baby in a manger and we haven't seen the king on a cross and the king in glory. When you see this, indifference doesn't make sense. But you know what? Anger also looks pretty foolish when you hold up the king of glory, right? I I mean, I get it. I don't like people telling me what to do. I want to be my own king. I want to run my own life. I want to have my own freedoms and my own choices. I want that. But when you think about my throne and my life, I mean, I can barely hold it together. And when you put that in comparison to the king of glory, the king of kings who holds death in his hands, the keys of death, anger also doesn't look that smart. Anger looks foolish when you think about the king of glory. So indifference is confronted, anger is confronted. And of course, it shows us that devotion is actually the only thing that makes sense. Devotion makes sense to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, when you see his presence and his power. But of course, it's not just his presence and his power. Devotion doesn't just make sense. Devotion is the best decision that we can make because Jesus says it's only through devotion that we get life. Jesus alone is the only one who holds the keys of death. No one else does. No one else can bring life. 
you know, the religious leaders who were indifferent, their good works weren't going to save them. King Herod, in a, in a chapter's time, before a chapter's time's out, he too will die. Anger's not going to save him. No, devotion is, it's the only thing that makes sense, but it's also the best decision because when we're devoted to Jesus, this is where we find life. So as you think about Christmas, as you think about the carols, the decorations, the planning, the stress, all of that, as you think about the message of Christmas and the claims of Christmas, and as you think about your reactions to Christmas and your reactions to the fact that a king is born, just make sure that your reactions hold the king in the manger and the king at the cross and the king in glory. And what you do is up to you. But hold all those in place and respond in the right way. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come before you today, we want to recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you are the King of the universe. And God, we come before you now recognizing that we are created and you are creator, that we barely have our own life sorted out. And you, Jesus, lived the perfect life and then died and conquered death and now you sit as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, as we think about our reaction to who you are, we pray, Father, that you would help us see the presence and the power and the beauty of Jesus. We pray that if this morning that we don't see that, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and a heart to understand. And we pray that you would draw us in to see you and to enjoy you, but also to fall before you with wholehearted devotion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.